Open our eyes, Lord, that we might see. Open our ears that we might hear. Open our mind and our heart that we might understand, so that we will turn to you and live. Friends, if you're able and willing, I'll invite you to stand for our gospel reading this morning. Our gospel reading this morning comes from the gospel of Matthew, chapter 16, verses 21 through 28. Friends, this is the gospel, it is the story of God, and it is our hope. From that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and undergo great suffering at the hands of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord. This must never happen to you. But he turned and he said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. Then Jesus told his disciples, if any of you want to become my followers, let them deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those whose life uh, and those who lose their life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit them if they gain the whole world, but forfeit their own life? Or what will they give in return for their life? The Son of Man is to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay everyone for what has been done. Truly, I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Indeed, let's pray. Father, Son, Spirit. Over the next few minutes, would you give us eyes to see? Would you give us ears to hear? Would you come, Holy Spirit, would you help us to think deep and true, beautiful thoughts about you, about us? And over these next few moments, would only truth be spoken? And would only truth be received. We ask this, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I'm going to invite us to sit with just a few movements in the gospel reading this morning. And the first movement is what this reading, the words that this reading begins with from that time on. Uh, Last week, we were listening in on this conversation between Jesus and his friends about not only who Jesus is, but as we talked about, Jesus would go on to reveal who it is that we are. And it's this moment when maybe for the first time for many of Jesus' followers, Jesus is beginning to let them in on who he is, that he is the Messiah, that he is the King, he is our Savior. 
He's beginning to let them in. But this begins to rub up against what his followers' expectations were of what a Messiah would be. For Peter and for the other disciples, the Messiah being Jesus was going to mean power, success, maybe even happily ever after. And so as Jesus begins to talk about things like taking up your cross, embracing death and suffering, as he begins to allude to the fact that following Jesus is not going to lead to power and success of life happily ever after as they may have understood it before, it becomes disorienting for them. And maybe for some of us, we've had that moment. If you've walked with Jesus for any period of time, then I'm sure there's been a time when the idea of following Jesus was very therapeutic. It sounded good. This is going to work out. It's going to be good. Maybe even now there are moments when uh, you experience freedom from something that has held you in bondage for so long. Or perhaps there is healing that you experience in part of your story or part of your body. And there's a moment, and maybe I'm the only one, so I'll just speak for myself. When that happens for me, there is a moment when I go, maybe this feeling will never go away. Maybe this is it. Maybe I have reached the moment no one really talks about where it is just smooth sailing. And then I open my phone, I take a call, I go home, whatever it is, and life just hits you in the teeth. Which brings us to our second movement. Peter takes Jesus aside. Let me say this off the top. I, most of us, give Peter a really hard time in this moment. Like a really hard time in this moment. The language that Peter is going to use and Matthew uses in retelling, I, this is one of those moments where I wish there was a way to sort of sit in on Matthew walking up to Peter and going, it's done, here's my gospel account, and Peter beginning to read it. And I wonder that a lot because even if you remember uh, in John's gospel, John goes out of his way to make a point <laughs> that he is faster than Peter when it comes to running. <laughs> I love it. These people were friends. There were inside jokes. There were all of these things. And so I wonder when Matthew uses the word for rebuke that he uses, if when he hands it to Peter, Peter goes, is this, are we on the final draft? Is this like, you know, the first draft? Oh no, it's already out? Okay, great, it's already, it's already to print. Because the word that Matthew uses is the same word that Matthew will use anytime Jesus rebukes a demon. This isn't like a, Jesus, are you sure? Matthew's trying to get across that Peter's response to this is visceral. And so he attempts to take control. He takes Jesus aside and goes, you have to quit doing that. A, bravo to Peter's courage. I mean that. The guts and the courage it takes for the person you just named as Messiah. And he goes, you're right. And you go, okay, but can I make one suggestion? And I have to imagine Jesus is like, sure, and it won't be the last. <laughs> and he rebukes Jesus. And again, it's easy to go, Peter, what are you doing? Don't you know the answer to all of this? I think there's something more going on. 
And I think I've even realized that my sort of flattening out Peter as just getting the answer wrong or only being pride and arrogant actually in some ways um, ignores Peter's own body. There's something Peter's feeling in this moment, a number of things. I would argue there are really three reasons why Peter's rebuking Jesus, because Peter is really confused. It's a moment of true disorientation for Peter. But also because Peter's expectations are not being met. This is not who I thought you would be, and this is not how I thought it was going to be going. You just said I was the leader of all this, and you're telling me it ends in a cross? Could you imagine taking a job, the job listing looks incredible, and then you show up and they go, okay, here's how we do bonuses. You get to pick your medieval torture device. Who's that? No, not your most annoying coworker, you. Peter's going, whoa, wait a minute, what? Peter's confused. His expectations are not being met. And let's be honest, Peter's afraid of suffering. Who isn't? Peter's beginning to connect dots. Okay, so you, me, follow, whoa, 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 whoa. This is not where I thought we were going. And so what is Peter's response in a moment where he's confused, where his expectations are not being met? when there's deep fear of suffering and safety. Peter is married for his family, for his friends, for his cousins who he's talked into coming along with him. Peter's looking around going, oh, no, no, okay. Maybe Philip was right. Maybe nothing good can come from Nazareth. And what is Peter's visceral response? It is denial and it is control. In a moment where Peter is disoriented, where his expectations are not being met, when he is afraid of suffering and pain, what does he do? He denies reality and he attempts to take control. Does that sound familiar to anyone else? Just me? To go, nah, okay, I misheard and I'm going to take control and I'm going to right the ship. And for many of us, myself included, when denial and control don't work, because oftentimes in these moments we actually can control little, we go on to numbing. Or maybe I can just numb the feelings away. It's all of these, the denial and the control, the numbing, are all my attempts, and if you're anything like me, are all your attempts to get to resurrection without passing through the grave. We want resurrection. Peter longed for resurrection. Maybe he wouldn't have said it that way, but the power, the success, the happy ever after kind of life that the disciples longed for, Jesus never rebukes it. He just reorders it. He just reorders it. Jesus wouldn't come today and go, oh, you're longing for a life happily ever after? Stop it. No, he would begin to go, no, I think that there is a possibility that you can see the Lord in the land of the living but in the land that is to come, that's all it will ever be. So what is Jesus' response to Peter's move to deny and to control? Jesus' response, and again, depending on how you've read this, how you've heard it taught, you're like, wow, Jesus calls one of his closest friends Satan. Like, that is not an everyday occurrence. Sometimes there are people in my life who that feels like, okay, solid, that'd be a solid move sometimes. Be like, all right, Satan, no thanks. 
But Jesus' response, I think, from what we know of Jesus, is a lot more gentle. Jesus' response is, I am not going to let it be this way. And it isn't a Jesus sees himself as the enemy of Peter or Peter as the enemy of Jesus. Saturated in this whole entire conversation is Jesus interacting with a student. Jesus as teacher, and there is no healthy teacher that goes, oh, you got the answer wrong, Brian? There's the door. You can leave. But it's rather go, no, 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 okay, whoa, whoa, whoa. And Jesus will rebuke him, but it's a rebuke that isn't just out of love, it's with love and out of gentleness. Jesus isn't calling Peter Satan, he's saying, I'm not going to let the enemy thwart this, not even through a friend. Peter is confused. His expectations are not being met. He's afraid of suffering. And I think those show up as some of the greatest places of resistance to Jesus in my own life and in many of our lives. And so what do we do as followers of Jesus, as students of our teacher, in moments when we are confused, when our expectations are not being met, we are deeply afraid of suffering. Jesus will go on to say, and this brings us to the third movement, for the Son of Man is to come with his angels and the glory of his Father, and then he will repay everyone for what has been done. Jesus here is telling us that the way we respond to life matters. That the way we respond to life matters. Not that it should always be perfect or that it will always be but that the way we respond matters. And not only does it matter, it tells us something about what's going on in the deeper places. Jesus, in this small little phrase, is inviting his friends both then and now, in a moment of confusion, in a moment when expectations are not being met, in a moment when suffering is here or on the horizon in our lives or the lives of those we love, He's inviting us to keep our eye on the larger story and not at the sake of naming the moment and the reality of the moment. That's often the two extremes that we tend to fall into when it comes to the church and the followers of Jesus. One is that we are great about naming the suffering and the pain that we see in our own lives and in the world, but there's never any talk of hope. There's never any talk of where this is all hurtling. And the other extreme is we only talk about where this is all going. Resurrection and new creation and healing. But we do so as a way of avoiding and keeping at arm's distance our own suffering, the suffering of others, and the suffering of the world. And the church is called, the followers of Jesus are called to hold these two things in tension. to name the reality of the moment, but to name the reality of the moment with God. To be with God in the midst of confusion, of shifting expectations and fear. And God has given his people two practices to not only practice in the moment when we're experiencing it, but that they would be part of our regular practices to form us into the kind of people who can hold that tension. Because if you wait to be that kind of person who can stand in the tension of the world's pain and the hope that is the reality of who God is revealed in Jesus, 
If you wait till the moment of pain and suffering, it will be nearly impossible to stand in that tension, which is why we need others who have and who can, but to become over time, little by little, those kind of people. And the two practices that God has given us, the first, and scripture is full of this one, is to pray our inner conflict, to pray that tension. Just look to Jesus, look to many of the saints. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane does not pray, all right, God, it's go time. Let's go. The kingdoms of darkness will be defeated, we will win, and the gates of hell shall not prevail. What does he say? Why? Why? My God, my God, remove this cup. It's the prayer of the poet in Psalm 42, why have you forsaken me? It's been called the prayer, the, the prayer of the forsaken, a prayer of complaint. We often know it as a prayer of lament. A prayer of lament is a practice that's mentioned 46 times in the scriptures. There's an entire book, the book of Lamentations, that is dedicated to laments. The Psalms. 70%. 70. That's a passing grade. <laughs> right? Am I right with that? Teachers, professors? Yeah. Ish. I don't know what they are now. 70% are Psalms of Lament. Anytime I am faced with that, I am forced to ask myself, does my life do my prayers reflect that? And it, depending on when you find me, sometimes they do. Sometimes it's, well, no, your laments are more 5%. Sometimes it's like, you're, it's nothing but lament. Uh, 70%. It's a reminder that you and I are invited to beat our fist against the chest of God. And who does that inviting? God, to cry out and to, to demand help. If you read through the Psalms of Lament, the prayers of Lament, they are bold on the edge of uncomfortable. But I would argue that in them is deep faith and deep friendship. It's a friend speaking to another friend, why didn't you show up? Why didn't you come? Why did you not heal? Why did you not deliver? Why didn't you stop this? There's grief and there's anger. And sometimes it ends in trust and praise. Don't be deceived. We don't know how long it took to write those prayers. And there are some prayers of lament that don't end in anything but silence. One of the invitations, you see this in the life of Jesus given to the people of God, is to pray prayers of lament, to name our complaint, to be angry, to beat your fist against the chest of God. 
And the image I always have in this moment is of a child who's so angry and deep below their anger is a longing for comfort. And it's an image of a parent, of the child beating their hands against the parent's chest and the parent with, not in an anger I'm going to restrain you, but with loving embrace holding until the beating of the fist give way to tears. The first invitation is to pray the inner conflict of a world not as it should be, of the world that is coming that will be. And praying to a God that is not in one extreme or the other, but is with us in the midst of suffering and pain. And the second invitation, I think, for us is to keep company with those who do that well. Jesus would be at the top of my list. Just to spend time in the Gospels, keep company with Jesus in the Gospels. I think Luke does this especially. And just watch. Just be an observer to watch what Jesus does with people who are in pain and suffering, who are confused. Notice what Jesus does not do. But also, there is a long line of saints, of women and men, some who are sitting in this room, who have stood faithfully and well in the tension between the world as it is and what they long and what God longs for it to be. There are ones throughout history, not just even in the stories of God. I think about Moses and Elijah. I think about Mary keeping vigil at Golgotha. But I think of wonderful saints like Teresa of Avila. Julian of Norwich, Bernard of Clairvaux, St. John of the Cross, these women and these men who didn't just say it, they embodied it. What they taught about what to do and where God is in suffering wasn't theoretical. It was written, and it took them a lifetime to write because it was written out of their very lives. But Philip Yancey, Chris recommended his biography, his autobiography, a couple months ago, and I picked it up and wasn't sure if I'm honest. I was like, nah, okay. It's Philip Yancey. I've seen him in too many life ways. Wow. And the beauty of keeping company with these saints is, in the words of Frederick Beekner, in reading their stories, we hear echoes of our own. And we know that we're not alone. And maybe just a little bit we're shown a way forward. I am here, writes the psalmist, calling for your help, praying to you every morning. Why do you reject me? Why do you hide your face from me?
Lord, we long to see you in the land of the living. We believe. We believe. Help our unbelief. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. You know, we all. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.